Hello, I'm Ran. Welcome to the Flow Artist Podcast. Today we have a conversation with the delightful Andrew Keast. Andrew is a man I've known for a very short amount of time, but he's already a good friend to Joe and myself. He's open, curious, and powerfully introspective. In this conversation, we talk about yana yoga, the yoga of wisdom or knowledge, and how its skillful use raises issues of identity, self-esteem, and finding your place in the world. Things that have already come up in this podcast many times. We also discuss Andrew's background and about how living with an open and receptive heart can lead to a vocation that is truly in alignment with your core values. Finally, we discuss his current role of storyteller with refugee talent. In this role, Andrew works to help refugees find employment, and we learn about how the situations these people are facing can often have devastating effects on their own identities. And as per usual, stick around for the picks of the week. I guess we'll start at the very beginning. So um, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Thanks, Ron. It's um, wonderful to be here. I was born in Melbourne Mm -hmm. um, and uh, have lived here most of my life. Um, Done a lot of travel though. So, but yeah, born in um, in Melbourne. Love Melbourne. I'm just sort of a bit curious about your life experience growing up. What sort of childhood did you have? What sort of environment did you grow up in? Yeah, family of five, mother, father, and uh, two younger siblings. I have a younger brother who's two years younger than me and a sister who's four years younger. Um, so I'm the eldest of three. A very, I don't know how you say, very um, privileged upbringing, I suppose, in a lot of ways. Um, very comfortable, I suppose you'd say, middle-class upbringing mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and schooling. Uh, my parents bought a farm when I was about five up in the country, so mm-hmm. I'm very blessed to have had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in the city and in the, in the country as well. So I spent most of our weekends about 100 kilometres north of Melbourne mm-hmm. on a, a farm that was had cattle and sheep and horses and all sorts mm-hmm. of animals, and so yeah, very blessed to have had the opportunity to live mm-hmm. um, and experience both those sort of lives. Yeah. yeah. And um, from what I, I know of you, you seem a very experienced and, and well-educated man. Um, whereabouts did you study? Did you go to university? Yeah, so I went to school here in Melbourne and then went to um, Monash University for a number of years. Um, didn't actually qualify with a degree from Monash though. Mm-hmm. Um, I started an arts degree uh, majoring in psychology and music. Um, also had um, philosophy in there as well. But I was a little dis- disenchanted, I think, with mm-hmm. the whole education system here and took myself off to London. In, a- actually, speaking of synchronous of moments as we were earlier, mm-hmm. I was working at the art centre and deep passion in music, studied music for most of my life through school and, and through university. Entered a raffle when I was working at the Victorian Arts Centre mm-hmm. in catering to uh, pay my way while I was at uni and won a trip for two to Fiji um, That's at, at the time of actually saving money to go to London and it was fortunate that that the raffle ticket was transferable because it was through a uh, travel agency into a return trip to London. So ah. that was my um, ticket to, to travel. So yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Very, very fortunate to have that mm-hmm. opportunity. And I understand you have travelled a lot. And in London, is this when you actually worked as a butler for a time? Yeah, I was very um, fortunate to have fallen into catering here in Melbourne and... Um, merging my passion for food and for music, worked at the Arts Centre and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the experience there and learning how to um, uh, to serve food to people in, in quite a formal setting there um, as a silver service waiter and um, took myself off to London and yeah, it was only a matter of a month or so after arriving that I worked for an agency that was placing people into um, similar types of environments, very formal um, dining experiences, and that included being a butler to directors of big corporations over there. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, amazing experience. Yeah, sounds like it. And so that's what you were doing in your nights in London. What were you doing in the day? <coughs> yeah, um, it was actually both day and night, the butlering. So um, we do events in the evenings, which were sort of gala dinners for um 
big charity organisations as well as um, serving um, directors in their dining rooms during um, during work hours. So it was kind of both. But it was casual so that I could uh, earn enough money to live and also travel. So I did a lot of travel around Europe at that stage as well because it was so accessible. So I loved that. Yeah. Any like particularly interesting adventures that you'd like to share from your travel times? Um, yeah, so uh, skiing in Andorra, which is a little principality between Spain and France. Um, is that the mountain where you can go to the beach during the day and then skiing in the afternoon? It's, it's not quite that close, but it is an extraordinary. Actually, back when I travelled there, it was known as the... Um, what did they say it was? the smug, One of the smuggling couple of capitals of the world. <laughs> it was pretty extraordinary that all these people driving around in very big, expensive cars. and But it was a very, very... One of the cheapest places you can ski in the world. Um, and so there was a group of about, um, I think, 15 of us that went and, and spent five days skiing in Andorra. Some of the other amazing travels that I did was um, travelling through the south of France to one particular place that I... That, um, deeply connected to, um, which is called St. Remy of Provence. Um, and it's actually where uh, Vincent van Gogh was in an asylum. Oh, yeah. And it's also where Nostradamus was born. And, um, yeah, it's got a really very powerful energy around that area. And just to sort of stand where Vincent van Gogh sort of painted his lavender fields and his sunflowers. Yeah, I was going to say, that's where some of his most famous paintings exactly, are from. yeah. And I've actually stood in the room where he lived. and uh, Which he also painted. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, so to see the chair that he sat in and you know, the mm. bed and all that sort of stuff was really, really powerful. Mm. Yeah. What so. was the energy like there? Like sad or reverent? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. There was a sadness, but what the French, I think the provincial government have done is set it up as a, a place where people with mental illness can paint and they actually sell their artworks today. So in sort of honour of Vincent van Gogh, they're keeping that going. And there was an art exhibition the first time I went there that was unbelievable, uh, just to see how people were um, expressing themselves to um, help heal themselves through that. So, yeah, yeah, beautiful. It was very powerful, yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. And yeah. I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead at all, but I understand you did a bit of a, a hike around the Himalayas, and that sounds like a pretty extraordinary experience yeah it's not jumping too far ahead because after four years of living in london and doing sort of um the odd week here traveling through europe i actually my partner at the time decided we'd travel um, overland from england to australia over uh, nine ten months um, so we bought a camper van, 1969 Moonraker cam- V-Dub camper van, <laughs> and circumnavigated Ireland and Scotland, um, which was extraordinary just seeing all the, the coastland, coastline of, of Ireland. Then took the ferry across to, to Holland, and fabulous story I love telling is the camper van Travelling across um, Holland, got to the German border and literally a kilometre or two over the German border broke down. Always said that it was coming home to die. <laughs> <laughs> 1969 Moonraker camper van had done, done its travels and it was coming back. And I remember the um, mechanic coming to fix the van and uh, asking me in German how many kilometres or miles the camper van had done. And I'd done schoolboy German and I said, you know, it done 300,000 miles, 300,000 miles. And this mechanic started laughing. It was like, and with such pride, patting the side of the car, saying, amazing, you know, you've, <laughs> you've done, done well, son. You've done well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, replaced the starter motor and off we went traveling around um, the rest of Germany, went to Slovakia, uh, Czech Republic, Austria. Yeah, and then sold the camper van and uh back in london and then flew to turkey spent three months traveling around turkey Mm -hmm. um extraordinary country really deeply connected to parts of um, turkey and have been back there since and from turkey went to pakistan and then from pakistan probably one of the most extraordinary parts of the journey was was joining a a, an expedition um in the back of a truck for six or eight weeks traveling up the Karakoram Highway up through the Indus Valley of uh, Pakistan, um, which obviously was once part of uh, India, into China, and then uh, across Western China onto the Tibetan Plateau for um, four weeks or so to Lhasa, and yeah, so for four weeks we were travelling above 4,000 metres with views of the Himalaya um, 
from the north side. And then from Lhasa went to Everest Base Camp and had um, great privilege and joy to visit Chongalongma, which is a native name for Mount Everest. And uh, yeah, probably one of the most spiritual and one of the most deeply touching experiences of my life to actually stand there in the magnificence and awe of of, um, that mountain. And then from Tibet, travelled down through to Nepal, spent a month trekking through Nepal, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, again, just an incredible journey. And um, from Nepal to Malaysia, Indonesia, or Thailand, Indonesia, and then to Australia. So, yeah, extraordinary um, journey. And was meditation already a part of your... (coughs) practice or something you discovered there? Yeah, that's a really good question, Joe. I was thinking about this last night. The first time I was really exposed formally to meditation was while I was at uni. I remember a mate of mine went off and did transcendental meditation. It was, we were sharing a house at the time and um, and he went away and did the course, but he, he was one of these people that really was genuinely keen to impart everything that he'd learned. So I didn't actually feel like I needed to actually do the course because for the next <laughs> two weeks he was like running his own courses of us, teaching us literally everything that he'd learnt. Um, Don't you have a personalised mantra in the teams? Apart from that bit, yeah. yeah we didn't right. get the personalised mantra. Um, I don't think you us, get that right away. Though. No, you have to do the course to get yeah. that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a really good question actually because a mantra is, is quite a key part of my practice now. But at the time, yeah, I just remember being deeply interested about it. But I come from a family where, and I, and I tell this story often, that my father was a Western doctor and my mother's a nurse, um, two generations full of doctors and nurses. My grandfather was a doctor, my grandmother was a nurse, all Western trained. And quite a, a resistance in some ways to exploring spirituality and the esoteric and those sorts of things my dad used to think that we were doing drugs if we were burning incense in our room so that's sort of how (laughs) um yeah his story sort of unfolded as to what that represented and I used to love the smell of incense in my room when Mm -hmm. I was a kid so um yeah uh and so when you were on your travels to these amazing sacred cities did you kind of pick up on that energy did you do any meditation or yoga or anything while you were traveling or are you more just soaking up the experience yeah um I think in my own way I was meditating um I was I felt like deeply connected and again I was sort of reflecting on this last night Joe. I um f- very blessed to have been taken by my parents and my brother and sister to Europe when I was 16 and I remember standing in um the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and seeing the um, uh, the Pieta which is one of Michelangelo's most famous sculptures of Jesus lying in Mary's arms and I remember as a 16 year old being really really deeply touched by that experience but not sort of understanding what it was and not coming from a religious background not really sort of connecting with the the imagery as such it was more the beauty of the sculpture I think that really spoke mm-hmm. to me and as a 16 year old it's actually start standing there crying and um, I went back when I was around 35 um, and I remember I'd forgotten about that episode as a 16 year old I remember standing in front of the Pieta and exactly the same thing happening and that then bringing back the memory of a 16 year old standing there and crying and thinking what is it about this sculpture that's really touched me and it's, it's been a big part of my inquiry is how do we connect with, with awe and beauty and, and how that actually makes us feel. So to answer your question, there's been a number of instances where I've connected, whether it be nature and, and viewing Mount Everest or the Pieta or standing in um, Vincent van Gogh's asylum or um, the numerous other places I've been fortunate to visit is that, that sort of connection with that, that beauty and Yeah, the meditation aspect, you know, I've done a lot of um, hiking and walking and I see walking meditation being a way that, or just walking being a means through which I actually connect with myself. And And that's probably something that no one needed to teach you. It's just something that you discovered (laughs) on your own. Yeah, and the other interesting aspect of that is having learnt music and actually practised music for as long as I did and again, very fortunate to have learnt the flute. And one of the key aspects of 
of wind instruments is learning how to breathe. Mm. So from a very early age, I remember my flute teacher pushing on my abdomen <laughs> and saying, you know, activate your diaphragm, activate your diaphragm, breathe, breathe, deeper, deeper, you know. So I'm really fortunate that that sort of, I think, has been a huge part of supporting my journey through meditation and, and yoga as well. So, yeah. And have there been any key teachers that you've encountered along the way? Oh, <laughs> yeah, thinking about this. Yeah, look, they're too numerous to really list here. I'd probably categorise that my key teachers have been nature, my family, my friends, the earth. And beyond that, the philosophers, musicians, artists, uh, deep thinkers, you know, whether it be... Um, Carl Jung or Mozart or Beethoven or Rachmaninoff or um, Michelangelo um, to Gandhi, Mandela, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, I think if there was a theme that I've really deeply identified with is the story that those people have told about how they want to live their lives and how they've reflected their lives through their art and how they live. That's been a key part, so. Lots of teachers that are around. In terms of formal yoga teachers, meditation teachers, um, yeah, there's been some really key people that have um, contributed to, to where I've got to today. Um, Ian Drasma is um, a remarkable yoga teacher who um, I've worked with on and off for a number of years now. He's based up in Queensland. Andrew uh, Moonsis that we've talked about already. Mm-hmm. Nikki Grimsdale and Sarah Creswell who conducted the t- uh, teacher training that I did earlier this year. Really, really grateful. You guys. Oh, <laughs> we're honoured to join that well, list. No, it's true. You know, I see everything, everyone and everything that we come in connection with is an opportunity to learn. And, you know, the degree that we have uh, humility and, and compassion and openness to learn through those experiences, I think, is, is what it's all about for me. Beautiful. <laughs> and so um, would you say that your primary practice is yana yoga? No, or not to put a binary and make things primary and secondary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. I Yana yoga is a part of my practice. It's in, deeply important to me because, or well, for a number of reasons, but one of them would be my sense is that a lot of yoga practice and meditation practice is, is geared around getting out of our minds, getting out of our heads. And in some ways, that's counterintuitive to the yana yoga practice, which actually says we we have a beautiful mind. Everyone has a beautiful mind that is here to to help us experience the world in some way. So the yana yoga practice actually looks at how we can use meditation and other practices to calm the mind, still the mind, bring the mind to a place of, of connection to our body and our experiences of the world. So when we talk about mind-heart connection, that's the essence of, of the yana yoga practice, as is other practices. But um, I guess having been a deep thinker for most of my life, and if my mum was to describe me as a very early baby, it was that I was a very peaceful child that sat in my cot or wherever and I just watched the world. You know, mm-hmm. I've just had this sort of intense curiosity and a deep, desire to to listen and learn and I think that's been a key part of the yoga practice but you know I love the asana practice if we look at um, yana being a part of the suite of of yoga uh, in terms of raja yoga bhakti yoga karma yoga in some ways I practice all of them most of the time in some way shape or form so it just so happens that I come from I suppose a a yani's perspective in, in how I practice the other things as well mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm curious how you came upon yana yoga in particular yeah that's a super question and i think it's a common a whole combination of things one of the key drivers i think has been having studied philosophy western philosophy mm-hmm. that i've been deeply curious about the question of who am i mm-hmm. and so um the david humes and the descartes and all the the earlier um, western philosophers answered part of that question for me but there was a bigger picture and that's that's in some ways I think has been the subconscious journey which has also led to the conscious choice to travel to the places I have to experience things 
um, beyond the Western paradigm of philosophy. But the, you know, the essence of jnana yoga is the question of who am I? I think the other aspect of that has been a number of significant events in my life that have asked, led me to asking a much deeper question about who I am. And that's, that's been a very healing process, a very cathartic process as well. So, but I love, love the aspect of, of asana as an example in, in moving through different postures is that it's, in, it's all, an, for me, it's all an inquiry. Mm. Um, you know, being, being upside down and doing, the, you know, the metaphor. And yana yoga is a lot about metaphors. We look at all of them and say, well, how does that reflect on, on, on how I see the world? So if I'm upside down, I'm seeing it from a different perspective, which I can then take into the rest of my life. And that's, that's the aspect of how we can acknowledge the beauty of the mind to be able to do those things, I think. Yeah. And so is your yana yoga practice more a state of mind or a perspective on how you approach the rest of your life? Or do you have specific things that you do like in that practice in a more ritualized way? Yeah, that's a um, super question too. It's a very difficult thing to actually explain yana yoga and it's not necessarily something that can be taught. I think there's other practices that can lead to a state of understanding what yana represents in terms of that intuitive wisdom and that the state that reflects that intuitive wisdom. Um, and a lot of it is around cultivating trust and other things that, that you know we've talked about before that we can do through asana and through meditation and other practices. So is there something specifically they do that cultivates yana yoga? Not one particular thing. I think it's lots and lots of things that sort of bring me to a point of deep trust, humility, compassion, empathy, and all the other things that um, allow me to be open and, and willing to um, receive the intuitive wisdom that yana yoga so yeah. yeah beautiful mm, thanks and i guess from an outside view it does actually it does seem to me that it sort of permeates who you are and the way you interact with the world is yeah i i adore it because energetically it represents um our, to me the deepest truth of who i am mm-hmm. and you know we obviously through the yoga journey choose whatever path um works for us in terms of that um that journey, um, for me, I think coming back to that state of mind and the, the cultivating the beauty that the mind actually represents, um, uh, the heart mind. Uh, there's a quote, I think it's Andrew Bennett, who says, the, the greatest journey we'll ever take is the 18 inches from our mind to our heart. Um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've said that completely correctly, but you get the intention. Mm. I think, yeah, for a lot of us, we, we live in that sort of rational, conceptual world of our minds, and then we seek journeys to, in some ways, escape that, rather than saying that, as I say, the, the mind is a beautiful thing, the mind-heart is a beautiful thing, and to bring those two things together, I think, is where the synchronous moments happen in our lives, where we're following our heart-mind, we're in the place exactly where we're meant to be at any particular time, because we, we, we recognise that, so... Since it's not a defined practice, do you have a feeling that you're on the right path with it? Or do you ever get the feeling that you're not on the right yeah. path with it? Yeah. Uh, yes, I do. And that's mm. a great way of thinking about it because yana at its, at its essence is you know, rooted in Vedantic wisdom and its um, fundamental premise is non-duality. So mm. when you say when you're not where you are or where you're meant to be, it's actually right in the middle yeah. of those yeah. two things. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly where you're meant to be. So uh, yeah. Yeah. when we bring that questioning um, at a deeper level into our mind and recognise the non-dual nature of um, un- the universe, um, has, as have the um, wisdom keepers for thousands of years been writing about and, and, and inviting us to experience is where, is where it's at. But I do feel from time to time, this doesn't feel right or mm-hmm. I'm not meant to be doing this in a particular time. Uh, you know, it's a lesson to be learned. Mm-hmm. And, and then we kind of navigate back to where it is that we feel we ought to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the interesting aspect of that is my sense is we can, well, one of the greatest questions I have is, do we need to know we're not on the path to know we are on the path? 
Mm-hmm. And do those things actually have to happen where we move to and from in order to find the middle middle way in some mm-hmm. respects? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there is some truth to that. And that's the, the non-dualistic nature of saying we can look at anything from the perspective of I'm not on the path or I can look at it from being on the path mm-hmm. and then say, of course, I'm on the path. Does my path have clearly <laughs> defined edges or is it a wide open field? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you've mentioned doing yoga teacher training. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering whether that has changed your own practice in some way or your thought processes. Yeah, um, I spent probably a good part of three years exploring what sort of teacher training I wanted to do. And as has been my way over the last few years, following my intuition led me to doing vinyasa teacher training, which on the face of it seemed a little odd only from the perspective of it not being aligned to the yana yoga tradition, but something I felt my body actually wanted to do and needed to do. And I think in in honour of that and needing to explore my connection with my own um, physical form, that that was um, something that I that I um, ought to do. And one of the most incredible experiences of my life to deepen, I think, deepen my connection with my body been so I can conceptualize all that I like in my mind and I can live in the the yani world of intuitive wisdom which has led me down particular paths but to bring a deeper sense of connection to my physical form has been a really key part and it seems like as well the yana practices is something that has always really been with you since you're a young child it's something that's come quite naturally to you so it makes sense that when you want to explore another avenue which is not as like to have some guidance yeah, with that, to yeah. have some help along that path. <laughs> exactly, and, and Nikki Grimsdale, who is the lead teacher delivering the teacher training, was is a remarkable teacher and very, very in tune with my journey. Said, Andrew, you love challenging yourself, Andrew. You love putting purposefully putting yourself in a place of discomfort. And, and I was very grateful that he was able to reflect that back to me because it has been a big part of my journey is to is kind of test myself test my boundaries but in in some some ways in some in in unusual ways not not necessarily you know climbing a big mountain or you know doing rock climbing or things like that but um, I do like that sense of of testing my experiences um, in some ways and the vinyasa teacher training really did open up um, some remarkable parts of my my physicality and my experience of the world as a result so yeah very grateful. I'd like to maybe bring it back to yana yoga just a little bit. Mm. I'm sort of curious. It obviously brings up a lot of issues around identity. And I guess for me personally, I, I sort of wonder sometimes in life, we, we live in a world where people will lay on their own projection of what your identity should be based on perhaps um, your race or gender or sexual preference, this, that and the other. So you're essentially you know bombarded with this image of yourself and I'm just sort of curious what yana yoga would say on that. Well, I guess there's a number of <clears throat> thoughts around yana yoga and similar thinking around this from a psych- um, psychology point of view um, and other wisdom keepers across other you know, tr- wisdom traditions. But it, at its essence is we know that through stories of family, culture, anthropologically, we have collected a sense of identity from the external environment mm-hmm. in whatever capacity we have and it's not to denigrate that because it's an important part of understanding our connection to the greater world it's just a part of part of the journey but to to question the stories that are associated with that identity is mm-hmm. where the, the 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 health of of yana yoga sits and mm-hmm. it's really that that humility and and deep um desire to question how it is that we're connected to those stories, how we're connected to um, that external environment. And, um, you know, what is now actually being questioned by neuroscience is the sense of, you know, us creating our own um, universe around us through the experiences we actually have. So my projections, as you said, run, of how I feel about myself and my identity actually starts to manifest in the things that I attract into my life and the, the, the life that I then choose to lead. So yana yoga is a great way to to connect in with that question of how do I want not just um, what my identity is, but how do I then connect to um, my world as a result of those, that questioning. Mm-hmm. 
Excellent. And I guess that really leads us into the whole idea of vocation. Mm. And would you like to speak about creating a vocation that aligns with your values and how you go about that? Maybe how it's manifested in your life? (laughs) Yeah, and that's been probably one of the most extraordinary parts of the journey for me, both from a just a general, I guess, rationalist view of my life and how things have unfolded is that I seem to have been exactly where I've needed to be at any particular given moment, doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing. I see that connection, I see that pattern. I think part of the the yana yoga practice and meditation and, and asana and all the other forms of yoga is to to acknowledge that. And that um, I've, I've learned extraordinary things. I've had amazing conversations. I've met extraordinary people. Um, to acknowledge that I have um, gifts to offer others way beyond anything that I might have been taught from a technical skills perspective, a deep a gift of, exp- of experiencing the world in a particular way that in sharing that others, other people may benefit from um, has been a part of my recent journey, I suppose, more than anything else, which has sort of led to the teacher training and, and other um, explorations. So uh, from a vocational perspective, you know, the essence of the word vocation is about creating a vehicle through which we can voice that gift or express that gift and for me through the yoga and and meditation practice cultivating a a mantra for another word I suppose but a way of being in the world that then cultivates the type of work for a better word that I wish to do and am doing in the world as a result of that is is why what I do yeah would you like to tell us a bit more about what you're doing in yeah. the world, work-wise? And... Yeah, so I'm really fortunate, I think, in, in starting down this path of trusting that intuitive wisdom actually led me out of the corporate world. And, and, and again, not to denigrate that experience because I learned some extraordinary things and had extraordinary teachers and experiences. But I connected with an organic cotton business some six-odd years ago and... That was a profound experience in trusting my heart and my um, intuitive wisdom that this was something that I was passionate about, both from a personal perspective, but having the ability to be able to share that and work with people and be a part of the beautiful Boomi Organic Cotton for almost three years and their extraordinary passion for, for changing the narrative around how we buy and invest in, in cotton. But beyond that, you know, being led to do the work that I'm currently doing with refugee talent and um, I suppose reflecting on the yana yoga journey of questioning identity and, and, and the expansiveness that's associated with that journey as it is with other forms of yoga and meditation practice is this understanding that I am, I am more than just this physical form. I'm more than just this... Um, uh, id. <laughs> I, I am connected to this broader universal um, uh, experience and consciousness, for a better word, and being of service to that is of service to me because I'm a part of that. And so um, find myself being of, of service in a variety of capacities, including um, refugee talent and the beautiful work that they do in finding employment opportunities for refugees, asylum seekers and migrants. So, yeah. And was there a bit of an interesting story about how they found you or you found them? As seems to be with a lot of my life at the moment. Um, the Yeah, it was uh, connecting at a, um, an event where they were presenting. No previous connection with them. Approached them afterwards, um, having heard their, their talk and introduced myself Um, I think the connection having worked and I haven't talked about this but I worked in human resources and recruitment for some 20 odd years and so that was your corporate life that was my corporate world yes um, including working for a technology business for six years so it was this extraordinary intersection with my passion for social enterprise for being of service to others and to for them to be at their stage in their organization to be expanding they're a technology platform in the employment space, working with refugees, asylum seekers and migrants. It just seemed like a, a beautiful opportunity not to be missed. And my my life 
now is much more about just having conversations with people and my title um, with Refugee Talent is Storyteller because for me it's about the conversations and the stories and the new narratives that we're telling around that particular group of people but it's also a part of who I am right now so just as I'm sitting here telling this story um, I think the ability for us to connect in with our deeper stories and to share those stories with other people is a way that we can start to change the world that we live in so yeah and i think am i right do you have storyteller on your business card i do i do (laughs) and i'm really really fortunate that i met uh jillian triggs who's was the, the head of the australian human rights commission until just recently and i was very fortunate to meet her at an event recently where she was telling a whole group of people standing around her that it's about changing the narrative associated with refugees and asylum seekers. And then I handed her my business card and she said, oh my God, Andrew, we need more people like you. We need storytellers. So to me, it's it's a bit of a dream come true because I do do a bit of writing more as a, um, a personal sort of cathartic experience. There may be a book, book to be written at some point in the future, but... For me, sharing sharing stories is is has been a part of my my healing process. And when I first met Anna from Refugee Talent, she said, "We want someone to be able to do some level of business development for us, but we don't want a sort of a hardcore sales approach." And she actually said, "What do you want to do, Andrew?" And I said, "Well, I love telling stories." So she said, "Great, we'll call you a storyteller." So <laughs> this again is sort of how my my life tends to be unfolding. I, I feel in some ways that I'm I get quite emotional talking about this, but it's like I'm living a dream. Do you think you could maybe describe what your week might look like, your work week with um, refugee talent? Well, um, it's very fluid, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we're in a high growth phase at the moment, um, a lot of it is about simply being in the right place at the right time, having the right conversations with people. So it can take me from... Um, delivering a talk at a conference as I did a couple of weeks ago in Shepparton to going to Canberra next week to make a presentation up there to... Is this a presentation to government? About... Yeah, so they're actually running a... Uh, Australian Human Resource Institute is running a um, diversity, inclusion and diversity um, conference day up there f- specifically for government. So yeah, it will be um, on a panel for that talk to meeting one-on-one with businesses um, or community organisations around... Um, Victoria and Australia so yeah there's a little bit of trouble involved but it's anything from talking to multicultural organisations at a sort of grassroots level through to talking to the head of diversity and inclusion for Australia Post or Telstra so um, yeah very very diverse which is exactly how I like it <laughs> yeah so when you first described your role to me in my mind I imagined you having a conversation with a newly arrived refugee or migrant and kind of hearing about their work and then finding a place for them where that they could probably not pick up where they left off because a lot of the labor laws and the qualification requirements are really different here yeah but finding somewhere here where they could kind of flourish and settle is that right or is that a little bit more is that a bit too simplistic no that is exactly it and you know for the biggest thing for me is that and, and this is where i guess it ties into the yana yoga pro, pro um, process is that in tapping into intuitive wisdom we can be led to opportunities for all of us to contribute to society and we can see the value that all of us have to offer each other on a really rational level that simply means that if i meet as i did two weeks ago a couple of iranian um, refugees who are doctors with i think combined you know 50 years experience between the two of them that yes there's certainly the need for them to meet um, requirements to practice here but how can we be proactive in identifying where those opportunities might exist so that they can move towards them rather than, as happens in a number of instances, people end up working in hospitality or other jobs as a means to make ends meet, but it's not necessarily stimulating for them and aligned with their core passions. So part of yeah, why refugee talent exists is to start to change the 
the narrative around the value that that particular group of people can offer us and that the both the intuitive gifts that they have as well as the technical skills and experience and qualifications that they may be able to bring to create those opportunities for them. So I remember you telling us that Australia is actually facing a medical professionals shortage in our near future. Yeah, we are, and not dissimilar in other countries as well. You know, um, on a broader level, um, talk I gave recently in Shepparton, what we're facing now is a very interesting situation globally. So there's over 200 million migrants across the planet. There's over 65 million um, refugees or forcibly displaced humans on Earth. Um, We're seeing global mobility more than ever before, whether it be um, forced or whether it be by choice. Um, What we're not seeing necessarily is uh, an equivalent global skills mobility so people being able to move and be recognized for the skills qualifications and experience they have to match that and that's probably and 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 sorry the dichotomy of that is that between 35 and 40 percent of vacancies in Australia go unfilled so the job vacancies it's at that level so we have this massive disconnect between the number of people that are moving and that that figure of 35 40 percent is not dissimilar in other countries as well so how is it that we've got you know, 35% of vacancies going unfilled. And yes, we have to have this massive untapped ability and capability sitting with people who are who are really genuinely passionate about um, supporting and connecting with their community and contributing towards their community. So that's where we see refugee talent really adding an enormous amount of value. Yeah, yeah. it's so important. Yeah, and it's a, a very interesting time, I think, as we also look at the effects of technology and saying that as I've seen recent statistics suggesting that 40%, between 40 and 50% of jobs will be made redundant over the next 20 years, or at least 40% of a job would be made redundant as that, that part of that job is automated, is there's going to be a massive on flow from that in terms of ability to reskill um, and recognise inherent qualities and recognise the impact that that's going to have on people moving. So, yeah, yeah much bigger story to be addressed. Mm. <laughs> and do you think there's any um, other challenges that you're facing in this area at the moment? Um, look, one of the biggest challenges is, well, there's a, there's a couple. So there's one I've, one I've spoken to, which is, which is about the narrative. So, you know, one of the inherent stories that I've heard throughout my, my life in human resources and recruitment is, unless you've got local experience or qualifications, you're, you're not suitable for a particular role. So we're starting to change the, the mindset and the story around that. Changing the, the legislation is another issue. So, um, you know, that's, there's obviously a political connotation to that as well, which is being talked about a lot. And we're um, very fortunate that the Refugee Talent has enabled us to have conversations at a reasonably high level within government to be able to influence, that will start to influence policy around that and, and simply sharing the good news stories of what we've been able to do as a result. So one of the remarkable things about Refugee Talent is that it's the first technology platform to connect in with the UNHCR database of refugees in Lebanon and Jordan through our partner organisation Talent Beyond Boundaries. So we're about to bring in the first refugee ever in the world from refugee camp in Jordan into Australia, sponsored by an employer here in Australia. So spreading those sort of stories and saying it is possible for us to help this particular group of people and meet the requirements of business with uh, appropriate skills, qualifications and experience. So, yeah, that's the bit that I'm really passionate about. Mm. That this has massive international um, application, yeah. This is probably a little bit outside of your realm and outside of your reach, but um, do you have any links or ways of connecting to people who might be held in temporary detention centres here in Australia now? Like, because that seems like a terrible situation that the government isn't taking a whole lot of action. Yeah, it is interesting. And uh, Anna, um, co-founder of Refugee Talent, actually worked um, on... um, Islands, so she's been very close to what's going on over there and there's a there's a, an interesting situation so there's the refugees that are domestically um, settled here in Australia that have full rights to work and they're um, supported by the government so they have appropriate visas to work and they've come through um, various channels to, to get here and they're fully supported the other group of asylum seekers that are based on um, in the um, camps haven't been granted that same privilege of of rights to work and that's that's an area that we're slowly 
making um, our voice heard in terms of how we feel about that. But I think that's a much bigger question at a political level and a governmental level. That needs, yeah, it's a whole policy that needs to change. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they're the sort of conversations I've been very fortunate to have with the likes of Gillian Triggs and Julian Burnside and other amazing people that are doing work in that specific area and, and really challenging the, the thinking. I think where we're through refugee talent, what we're actually saying is that these people, whether they're refugees, asylum seekers or simply migrants who've chosen to be here, regardless of that, is that all of those people, uh, like you and I, they have skills, they have ex- life experiences, they have, in some, some instances, extraordinary qualifications and depth of experience supporting those qualifications, that we can actually facilitate them finding employment here. So the, the narrative of them being a burden on the community or reliant on, uh, dependent on... Um, uh, social services is 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 not necessarily is not the predominant narrative there may be people who do need that support but we can find them employment and they can be contributing to the economy contributing to and this is where the the, the whole connection in with yada yoga and identity is sense of belonging mm. sense of purpose, yeah. sense of contribution and and we at our hearts i think we all feel that we want that we mm. need that um that through refugee talent we can actually you know, we've got the platform to facilitate that to happen. That's that's where I think we can really start to make a difference. Part of what you're doing is almost, you know, as a storyteller, you're almost helping them to rewrite their own story of what... <coughs> yeah, that's shaping that narrative. Yeah, yeah. Well, the extraordinary thing about that is there's 65 million forcibly displaced people on Earth right now. So if you look at that group of people and consider they don't have that choice. Mm-hmm. They've been forcibly displaced, mm-hmm. so they're... Their identity, and I get quite emotional about talking about this, their identity has been deeply eroded either by uh, taking away their sense of, in some instances, family. could be their immediate family that they've been removed from. might be their community. might be both. might be their country. So you think about the things that define you and what you're connected mm. to and say, let's take all of those away and not give you the rights to work, as, as has happened with a number of asylum, with a lot of the asylum seekers, is you're not, you're actually, a, it's illegal for you to make those connections. It's illegal for you to work. Mm. Um, and yet that's what gives me a sense of self and purpose and belonging. So for me to to have the opportunity to impact on those people's lives is is huge yeah you're obviously making a practical visible shift are some of your work with asylum seekers and refugees on a more emotional and personal level as well just hearing people's stories and is there any kind of i know i guess my mind goes to like art therapy or them writing down their own stories or something to nurture the emotional upheaval yeah and kind yeah. of make peace as if that's even possible yeah within yeah. themselves it's really inter- interesting actually i've just connected with uh, an organization out of sydney which is um uh, yoga for refugees and um uh, haven't spoken yet with Danielle in detail, but I think there are a lot of people that are recognising the opportunity for us to support um, refugees um, in, in different ways, absolutely. Um, for us uh, right now at Refugee Talent, it is uh, about giving them a voice um, to, be, to be heard for the skills, qualifications and experience they have that's relevant. So to give you an example, the other founder, Narari, worked uh, as a a lecturer in IT in Syria, um, masters in IT, applied for hundreds of jobs through Seek and wasn't able to get anywhere because he didn't have the local experience that I spoke about earlier. So that's a very, very common story. And it's not to, I guess, denigrate the role of Seek. They play a very important part in supporting people getting employment. But to give this particular group of people a voice specific to them um, so that they're able to be heard in amongst everything else that's going on is really a critical part of, uh, of what we do. So, um, But there are amazing communities that are doing grassroots um, support of, of refugees in lots of other ways from a therapeutic point of view um, as part of their, their resettlement. We're quite clear at Refugee Talent that it's about the employment piece. No, I think that's really... Yeah. Uh, you can't be all things to all yeah, people. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to get involved in doing the yoga um, 
for refugees because obviously that would bring um, a lot of my passions together. Mm. But as I said earlier, part of the work that I do is actually yoga. So to y- yoga is, you know, <laughs> yoga is everything. Mm. So um, being of service to them in being the voice for, or at least being the the channel through which they can express themselves. So we do a lot of work in promoting the placements that we've actually made as good news stories out there to tell to both other refugees and also to employers to say, look, we've been able to place these people um, in extraordinary situations. And in a lot of instances, that group of people don't necessarily want to make the connection, this might be a gross generalisation, but might not necessarily want to make the connection between what they've experienced in terms of the resettlement and the maybe the trauma associated with that, with actually getting a job. They just want to do a job. Yeah, not absolutely. like you and I. They just want to go mm. to work, do, mm. do what they need to do, do what they know that they can do, mm. contribute, um, be able to support their family or whatever else they want to do. And So there may be other aspects where that comes into play, but not something we're doing right now. And I guess as well, just having those basic survival security needs met here and now in a new place yeah. before you even have the headspace to dig into the exactly. other layers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's um, a lot of work that the resettlement organisations do um, around supporting people with that particular, with um, appropriate skills and qualifications, therapeutic skills and qualifications to be able to help people deal with um, that that aspect of resettlement, which is, it, it can be, you know, very, very tricky and um, very um, painful as well. So, yeah. Take it back a little bit, as we've discovered, you've sort of been able to, or you've been very fortunate to be open to your intuition and just find work that really aligns with your values and what you want to bring into the world. And I guess my question would be, how would someone perhaps listening who is sort of curious about yana yoga and and, um, the potential for, you know, opening their own intuition to fulfill their own purpose, what would be a good place to start? (laughs) (laughs) read every single philosopher yeah yeah um this is something of course i've pondered because that's what i do (laughs) i think everyone's journey is so individual and so specific to our life experiences the things that make us get out of bed in the morning the things that make us smile the things that bring us joy i guess um, one of there's been a number of aspects that have contributed to where I've got to and, and, and one of them has been deep reflection on the things that I that deeply touch me mm-hmm. so this, this, is a, this is an emotional journey for me as much as anything else mm-hmm. um, so all the travel all, all the physical things all the technical skills and all the other things I've learnt the journey into my emotional being and like I said with the, the quote of the journey from mind to heart is getting to a place of, of, of peace in my heart and that being the place from which I then start to create the life mm-hmm. that, that serves that. So um, when I talk about um, Gandhi and Mandela and Martin Luther King and all the other um, peace activists, for a better word, that have impact on my life. Um, that's my mantra. Finding finding what resonates with other people in their own time, in their own space, um, is part of life's journey. You know, um, if there's one or two practices that I would say that have supported me in, in cultivating that and understanding what is important to me has been stillness silence um, understanding my connection to my physical form my body mm-hmm. through asana um, being open vulnerable um, curious um, trusting um, and willing to let go let go of the stories of who I think I am in order to find out who I am. And that journey for many people is, um, can be very, very challenging. It was very challenging for me um, to start to question the things that were really important to me. 
that made my being dance. You know, my, I feel my cells dance with joy if I'm in the right place. It's that, it's that you know, ingrained. It's that small that happens on a, on a quite a remarkable physical body bodily level that I that, that, that sort of welling of, of joy comes from it's not um, yeah, it's not a, a head thing it's a bodily heart thing so I'd invite people to be open and explore and 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 I was talking with a friend yesterday about the value of of, of finding um, stillness and silence within us um, to and to create the space for new things to come into our lives. I think that's the other great joy that I've had. And and in some ways I've been very privileged. I mean, talk about, you know, refugees and asylum seekers, they certainly haven't necessarily had the the, the, the opportunity or the good fortune to be where I am um, to have allowed that to happen. But we all have an opportunity. And I, I did a yoga class earlier this year where I was talking about, you know, the physiology of the body saying that our cells a cell is 99% space, you know, we take away the nucleus mm-hmm. um, and we're made up of 7 billion, billion, billion cells. So we're 99, if the cell is 99, 99% space, we are 99% space. So what do we fill our lives with? <laughs> <laughs> and when we start to ask that question and start to find the space on that deep, cellular level and 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 sit with that and find um, a sense of of peace and, and resolution with mm-hmm. that space which a lot of people um, find very uncomfortable mm-hmm. sitting with their own silence who are sitting with themselves I'm very fortunate and I might be getting a little back off track here but I went to Vipassana um, retreat last year where I sat you know still for 10 days for 10 hours a day um, meditating and it was one of the most transformative um, processes that I've been through to support my yoga and meditation practice in understanding how comfortable am I really to sit still, to sit with my body with no distractions, nothing. You weren't allowed music, you weren't allowed um, phone. Not even yoga, right? No yoga, no books, nothing. Just You just sit. And I think if we can, and there's been some extraordinary transformations that have been recorded now with the effects of meditation um, uh, for passion and other, other practices in um, rehabilitation of prisoners and and all sorts of members of the community. So, I think we can get great great value from understanding ourselves by sitting still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you might have already answered this with the stillness and the space and the giving yourself time. But mm. I know that um, burnout and even depression can be a quite a common state of mind facing activists and people working on a massive cause. Mm. especially when up against government policy or seemingly insurmountable odds. Have you got any self-care practices that you can recommend for people who feel like they might be kind of heading towards burnout? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, point, Joe. The, there's a lot of talk now going on around the social enterprise space, um, not just from, um, I guess, more broadly from an entrepreneurial perspective, but within the social enterprise space, there's a lot of people putting in an enormous amount of effort for in a lot of instances very little financial report uh, reward in the first instance because they're following their passions and their dreams and just any money is going back into the cause exactly exactly and you know that can definitely have an impact on on people and finding that balance can be very very tricky i think one of the fortunate aspects that i have in how i approach my work now is in most instances making time for um, finding that space and that um ability to sit still and silence doesn't always happen I think being fluid and being open to how and when you can actually take those is is a part of the practice as much as anything else you know rather than saying you know I must get to my 6am yoga class every morning in order for that to be it's saying if I have to grab a midday meditation in order to get see me through the rest of the day then that's what I need to do so it's being it's being fluid around that and and my life is very fluid at the moment as well Joe. so you know to 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 have that flexibility I think is a is a key part for entrepreneurs and for those that are in the social enterprise space definitely yeah and I guess just acknowledging that time that you take to recharge your own batteries is not time that you're taking out of what you put into the cause it's 
kind of adding longevity and sustainability to what you're doing. Exactly, and it's something I've talked a lot with um, with Anna from Refugee Talent as well. Is is you know, in some ways, there's no point us actually doing this if we're not sustainable in our own mm. practices. We're about creating opportunities for others, but it needs to be done in the context of the the organisation that we're building here. Is that we're supporting and nurturing everyone else to be who they want to be as well, which means being sustainable and, and healthy. So being open about that and and facilitating conversations so that we are providing the opportunity for people to be able to speak about their own well-being and health and you know I was extraordinarily grateful such a simple simple thing a few weeks ago we had the are you okay day mm-hmm. and and Anna, and Anna actually asking me are you are, are you okay Andrew and and I hadn't even thought about it being that day but it was such an important little gift for her to ask that question and um, to embed those sorts of practices into organisations that kind of check-in process I think is really really important to support um community widely as well as social enterprise and enterprise i think that's maybe a good note to end it on so now it's time for pick of the week and uh, my pick of the week is uh, the asylum seeker resource center has a mentoring program Um, i have a friend who volunteers for them and they're this isn't strictly yoga related but they are looking for people to mentors in areas like it and engineering so if there are people out there... If you're wondering what you can do to help and make a difference. Mm, yeah, that would be a good option. And I'll leave a link there in the show notes. So I feel like mine is quite a frivolous choice of pick of the week, given <laughs> what we've been talking about. But there's a new TV show on Netflix that we've got pretty into. And it's called The Good Place. I hope I'm not going to give you too many spoilers, but all of this unfolds in the first part of the first episode. This woman wakes up, she's in this strange place, kind of seems like it might be heaven. They're telling her that this is where all the good people go and this is like her reward for the good life she's led, but it kind of unfolds that she's in someone else's place. She actually has led quite a selfish life and the show it just unfolds exploring all aspects of philosophy, what it is to be a good person, mm-hmm. do the motivations behind the actions invalidate the actions themselves all really interesting philosophical and moral and ethical questions in this world that kind of looks like something out of the Truman Show or Pleasantville. It's all saturated colours and everyone's got their own kind of house that's designed for them, so crazy architecture. And it's quite surreal and often kind of slapstick physical comedy as well as these deeper philosophical questions. So it's a good one. And it's funny. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got one, Andrew? Yeah, my pick of the week would, would be naturally um, refugee talent. Um, you know, having been with them for the last, um, uh, well, been connected with them for the last year, their work is extraordinary. And um, the value that they're offering to community, um, both refugees and to employers around Australia is making an incredible difference and for any refugees asylum seekers or migrants wishing to register for employment opportunities our website which is refugeetalent.com are welcome to register any employers who are interested in employing are also welcome to register on the same site excellent and we'll put a note to that in the show notes but um yeah thank you so much for having this conversation andrew it's been a real pleasure thank you right Thank you, Joe. Oh, namaste. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I definitely got a lot out of this conversation. As always, if you've got any questions or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us at podcast.flowartist.com or email us at podcast at flowartist.com. We are Flow Artist Podcast on Facebook or at Flow Artist on Twitter. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please consider subscribing or leaving us a review on iTunes. It'll really help us promote the podcast. The theme song is Baby Robots by Go Soul and used with permission. Do yourself a big favor and get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thanks again. Big, big love.